Hey, I want to welcome, for those of you who are joining us all over the country, all over the world, uh, welcome. I haven't had a chance to do that. All of our Atlanta area churches, we're so privileged today, super excited today to have Croft, Dr. Crawford Loritz with us. Um, he's, as, as you've already heard, he's just become a dear friend through the years, and he really is a go-to person for me. And I find myself just wanting to take notes anytime I'm around him and anytime, I, even in, in casual conversation. So would you please give a warm North Point Ministries welcome to Dr. Crawford Loritz. Well, thank you so much, Andy. It's good to be here. Good to be here with you all. And for those, the other locations who are viewing right now, it's a joy to be here once again with you. Now, he's had me back here several times. And so I I, I think he invites me back to see if I can finally get it right. And so I (laughs) thank you for the opportunity. I'm trying. I'm trying. It's a joy to be with you. My wife's not with me today. She had another commitment, but uh, she is the absolute joy of my life. We've been married now for 51 years, and she's, yeah. She deserves combat pay being married to me for 51 years. uh, And I would say she was just a child when we got married. No, that's probably, I shouldn't say that, but she is a... Yeah, yeah, she's, she's absolutely wonderful. We actually met in college. Um, the story is about a week before I came back on campus for my sophomore year in college, my high school sweetheart, we had gone together all throughout high school, dumped me, kicked me to the curb. Can you imagine somebody getting rid of all of this? <laughs> you said, yeah, I can see that. <laughs> And so I was, it's true, sir, I was devastated. I was in my, in my dorm room praying, actually. God, no more women. They mess you up every time. And uh, I'm not going to date anybody this semester. I'm not going to be distracted or deterred. You and me, Jesus. Just, you know, and I'm going to stay focused on my studies and my relationship with you and all of this. And, and people who know me know that once my mind is made up, I can be fairly focused. So I got up off my knees filled with this deep-seated, stalwart, single-minded commitment to not be distracted by the opposite sex. And I walked down the street, and I was going to one of the buildings on campus and just rehearsing this decision to stay focused and all of this. So then I opened the door of this one building, and there was a young lady that I hadn't seen before. And I don't know what happened. I got healed instantaneously. I believe in divine healing. (laughs) And so my mama taught me to be hospitable to strangers. And so I I introduced myself. I said, hello, I'm Crawford Loritz. What's your name? She said, I'm Karen Williams. I said, oh, that's wonderful. Well, you know, I've been assigned to you to be your tour guide. And been showing her around now for 52 years. She is the absolute joy of my life. The absolute joy of my life. But one of the things we've discovered in our marriage, just like you have, if you've been married any longer than 30 days, you've discovered this, that, uh, you know, love is both a noun and a verb. That you got to work at love. Love is not automatic. Love is intentional. You got to fuel it. You got to prioritize it. 
got to pour yourself into it. And regrettably, marriages fall apart all the time. And a lot of those reasons can be put under the big banner of neglect. Nobody ever gets married and stand at the altar and look at one another and say, I'm going to destroy your life. (laughs) We don't do that. We're in love. We're in love. But life happens. And before you know it, you don't intend to do it. You sort of drift. You start making assumptions and you don't resolve issues and you move over here. You wake up one morning, you wonder what happened to us. That's also true in our relationship with God, our relationship with Christ. Now, I, you know, it's not a performance thing. Don't get me wrong. You're going to hear me talk about this in a second. But that love needs to be nurtured. It needs to be prioritized. And you can do some of the right wonderful stuff and still be cold and dead in your heart. Jesus had that in mind when he told John, who was in exile on the Isle of Patmos, to pick up your pen, buddy. I want to dictate some letters. And by the way, he, he dictated seven letters to John. And five of those seven letters are, have basically the same template. Where there's celebration, right? There's caution. And then there's correction. But this letter in Revelation chapter 2 Uh, verses 1 through 5 really has, I really believe, our address and zip code all over it. And we've got to pay attention to this because I happen to believe that this is the general condition, if we're not careful, of Christians here in the Western world. So he says, John, pick up your pen. I got something I want to say. Now, I need a little, little, little detail here. The church at Ephesus, by the way, this is a letter to the church at Ephesus. It's not one big, huge place and like, like this. The church at Ephesus was probably a series of smaller house churches dotted all over the city. And there was an elder over each one of these house churches. And you can imagine, so maybe there's 12, 15 people crowded into a small house and this elder is reading this message from the mouth of Jesus himself. And by the way, when you read your Bible, always read it in its emotional context. And they're sitting there listening to this. The very first thing that Jesus says to them is that he, he celebrates them. There is celebration. I want to pick it up here in verse 1. It says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. Ah, just summarize this for a little bit. Now you're sitting there, and you're next to your husband or wife. I'm sitting next to Karen, and the elder reads this, and He's, it's like Jesus is giving us a standing ovation. 
He is celebrating us. Close examination of these two verses, you might conclude that he, he, he's actually celebrating or commending them for right behavior. You just look at the verbs there. You're enduring, you're, you're holding up, you're patient, all of this stuff. There's no hint of anybody living in any protracted nastiness or whatever. So he says, no, no, that's, that's, that's good. That is wonderful. He's celebrating that. Secondly, you have to look closely at this, but it's there. He's also celebrating their right beliefs. There's a little line that says, and you've put to test those who call themselves apostles and are not. The not so subtle inference is that you, you, you have an accurate understanding of truth and what's right and wrong and what the Bible generally teaches or what my words generally teach. And uh, you can discern when, you know, somebody's spitting on your foot telling you it's raining. You, you, you got that. It's wonderful. By the way, I pastored for a number of years and, and Andy would probably tell you the same things. People, you know, they, they transfer, relocate to another city and they want to know, hey, Andy Crawford, where, where can I go? Is there a church that you can recommend? Well, at the top of our list, we're thinking about recommending places where the people are not, you know, screwing up too bad in their behavior. And we want to recommend a place where you know, they actually believe what is true. It's wonderful. And if you're like me, I'm sitting next to Karen and these words come across and I'm saying, high five, we ain't doing too bad. Jesus is celebrating us. Now keep that in mind. It's legitimate. And yet this next line takes the air out of the room. He moves from celebration to caution. And this is probably one of the most extraordinary statements in the Bible. Jesus says this. Not John or another person. But Jesus says this. He says, yet I have something against you. Oh, you you just said I'm behaving right and believing right. Tension, right? I'm behaving right and I'm believing right. But I, Jesus says, got a problem with you. I have something against you. There's something wrong with your brand of Christianity. Yeah, you're behaving right and you're believing right. But there's something wrong with your brand of Christianity. And then he gives a clear statement of a big problem. Listen to the statement. I think sometimes lazy speakers have kind of like been a little sloppy with what Jesus says here. 
listen to the statement of the problem. This is what I have against you. Uh, you're behaving right, believing right. Okay, okay, that's fine. Here's the problem I have. The problem I have with you is that you have left your first love. Now, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. It says you have abandoned. There's another translation. I prefer the term left. He says you have left your first love. I would suggest to you that Jesus is saying to them, you have become distracted. Now, hang in there with me. I'm going someplace with this. Listen, although it's not overtly stated, I really believe what he is saying is that the right stuff that I commended you for has replaced the love that you should have for me. You've gotten distracted by right stuff. You've gotten distracted by good stuff. You've gotten distracted by correct stuff. But the problem is, (laughs) primary passion is given to that which is process or secondary issue. Let me, let me, let me give you an illustration. Not too long ago, uh, when I was pastoring, I had one of those days I was really excited about. I, I, uh, there were some Christian leaders who were flying into Atlanta. They wanted to meet with me, and I was excited about this, this media project. They were going to prototype it here. Uh, it was about reaching a lot of people for, for Jesus, and it was, it was just a great day. And then I was going to hop on a plane and fly to another city, and, and there'd be thousands of people that I was going to share the gospel at this event. And I was just really pumped about my day. Now, people who know me know that I'm a little obsessive-compulsive about time. And for whatever reason, I happened to be running late that morning, which was not a good thing for a guy like me. And so I'm running late, and, uh, you know... So I hop in the car, you've been there, <laughs> and I'm excited about the day, but I'm, all the while I'm on my way to the office, I'm thinking about, what am I forgetting? What am I forgetting? I'm forgetting something. What am I forgetting? About three-fourths of the way to the office, I go, oh, man, I left my wallet on the dresser. I'm driving without identification. Now, none of the stuff that I wanted to do was wrong. They were all to advance what was on my heart. It was all great, wonderful things. But this good stuff distracted me for something necessary. Again, the process is not the destination. Uh, let me just, you know, I'm, I'm just too old to do recreational speaking, so here it is. Look, 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 look. Some of us, some of us love what we do for Jesus more than we love Jesus. We love our small groups. We love the process. And all the other things, the wonderful stuff. But they replaced him. Thus he says, you have left, not lost, left implies distraction. You you have left your first 
love. Now, this is not the pedantic or the sequential term for first. You know, you, know, you do this and then you do this and then you do this. It's not the orderly term for first. It's the essence term for first. In other words, uh, uh, that, that which should establish all of the other priorities in your life and that which judges all of the other priorities in your life. At this stage of the game, I, I, <laughs> I'm so grateful for my wife. I mean, the stuff that she's put up with me, my mistakes, my overcommitment, my travel schedule, and all of the, and the, the harebrained stupid stuff that I've done through the years. At this stage in my life, she, you know, she really is everything to me next to Jesus. Karen, our relationship established all of the other involvements in my life. And this is what Jesus is saying. You, you have left your first love. In other words, you love something more. Other things are more determinative. And the dastardly irony is, it's the right stuff that you love more. Think about that. So don't get ticked off at people who are worshiping idols. Wonderful believers and followers of Jesus do it all the time. Christian performance apart from the centrality of Jesus will always mean legalism. Always. And we're so arrogant sometimes and proud about how right we are. We worship our theology rather than worshiping the giver of our theology. And so... He says, you have left your first love. And what Jesus is saying is that Christianity is a person, not a process. It's a person, not a process. Hear me on this. Now, this, this is, this, it has a lot of freight here that I can't get into this morning. The word love here is, uh, I, it, the Bible's New Testament is written in a language called Greek for the most part. And there's, there's different words translated for love. But this is, this is the word agape or agapao. It, 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 and some people say, well, that's God's unconditional love. Well, that's kind of a superficial way of saying that. It's more than that. It's almost the indefinable word for love. It's a love that goes beyond human comprehension. There's no quid pro quo. It's, it's, it's the pursuant love of God that ran you down when you were going in the opposite direction. It's that love that found you in those hell holes. It's that love that reached down and delivered you and wrapped its arms around you and wouldn't let you go even 
though you squirmed. These people, if you read Acts chapter 19, these, these Ephesians, I mean, I can't go into the details of this because they did some raw, nasty stuff, Jack. They were in these temples and all this other kind. They were doing all kinds of crazy stuff. You talk about ensnared and in chains and, and all of this. This little dude named Paul, an apostle shows up in the Agora, the marketplace outside the temple, and they walk out of the temple after doing unimaginable filthy stuff, and they hear him talking about a man who died on the cross in, in their place and for their sin. And the love of Jesus watched over them. It's almost as if Jesus is saying to the church of Ephesus, well, look at you now. Now, you don't do that stuff anymore. Well, that's good. You're a little sophisticated. Oh, that's wonderful. Hey, you know your Bible. That's good. Who, who delivered you? Uh, you, you forgot you were helpless. In fact, you're a little smug and arrogant about your Christianity, aren't you? Well, now that the air is out of room, we ain't doing this no more. I'm looking for a hole in the ground. He celebrates us, right? Cautions us. But what I love about our Savior is that he doesn't leave us dangling Jesus is not interested in condemnation. He's interested in justification and deliverance and hope. So he says, here's, here's the prescription, man. Here's the formula. And by, by the way, he doesn't tell them to stop behaving right or believing right. He says in so many words, you have an alignment problem. So now you come to verse 5, uh, just the first part of the verse. He says, now, what do you do? He says, well, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If you want to get cute and try to remember all this, he said, remember, repent, and redo. Let's put some meat on that. The very first thing he says, I want you to remember. Uh, the, the, the word remember has a bit of a double entendre. It's a bit of a double entendre, or, 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 or there's, a, there's, there's, a, there's a passive and active element to memory. The word remember, remember. It's almost as if he's saying, hey, let's stop, stop, stop. Pull over. Don't keep going, don't, don't keep going the, <laughs> faster in the wrong direction. Pull over. I want you to look in the rearview mirror of your mind. Go back, way back, way back, 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 back. Before you knew all this Christian stuff, before you knew all of this stuff about church and small groups and dynamic processes and how I, before you knew all that stuff. I, w- I, w- I want you to feel the senses of your memory. I want you to remember how guilty you felt. I, I, I want you to remember how grimy you felt. I, I, I want you to remember how lost you 
then I want you to remember, you could not do anything for yourself. Oh, you tried to bootstrap it, but it didn't work. Jesus says, I, 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 not your intellect, I rescued you. Would you remember that? But there's an active part of memory as well. It doesn't just mean to recall, it also means to rehearse. I think what Jesus is saying is this. I don't ever want you to get so sophisticated in your Christianity that you forget the dramatic miracle of your transformation and forgiveness. Every day of your life, you need to rehearse the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for you. Don't get cute. And by the way, it's in the rehearsing of the death, burial, and resurrection for you that that drives entitlement out of your mind, that keeps gratitude fresh and an appropriate sense of brokenness and humility, which is wonderful. No matter how many books you read, Crawford, okay? You teach in some seminaries, right? None of that is bigger than the cross. Then he says, I want you to repent. The word repent there is a word that it could have been translated, uh, change your mind. Change your thinking. And I actually think there are two, well, let me change your thinking. I think he literally means change your mind about how you're approaching your walk with God. And again, he's not eradicating. This is not some verbal eraser for what he said in verses uh, uh, you know, two and three about right behavior and right beliefs. He, no, he meant that. He meant that. He said, but look, look, I want you to understand. I want you to understand that it's not the focus on the right behavior and the right beliefs. The focus is on your relationship with Jesus. The focus is on a person. The focus is on that love relationship. Out of that will come right behavior and right beliefs. But change your thinking about all of that. If you don't, then you'll go around bragging to everybody about how how erudite and smart you are as a Christian, how spiritually mature you are over other people, and all of this kind of nauseating Pharisee nonsense. And frankly, our churches are too full of that stuff. Change your mind. Repent. That's what repentance is all about. Get yourself out of the center of your Christianity. That's what he's saying. Get you and other people and other processes out of the center of your Christianity. By the way, please forgive me, but like I said, I'm an old man and you can, you know, we kind of like do stupid stuff. But look, I got to tell you something. (laughs) 
Annie and I talk about this sometimes. I, 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 I am just uh, burdened for the, 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 the nature of Christianity in our culture, particularly our churches. There's too much of our opinions and ideas and thoughts we're making that equal to the gospel. And we've institutionalized the nauseating arrogance and camouflaged it as authentic spirituality. Where the signature of authentic spirituality is profound humility and gratitude. So that even when we have to denounce things that are wrong, we do it with a tear trickling down our cheeks. We take no pleasure in showing people up. We take no pleasure in, oh, I really told him, oh, I wrote a blog about him, and I wrote a blog about that thing. I never do that again. Really, seriously? Who are you, the fourth member of the Trinity? Remember, repent, change your mind. Then the last line is really cultivate your love. Do again the deeds you did at first. Now, I I have to say, when I I first studied this passage many years ago, that one line bothered me because I didn't know, what, what is he talking about? I Went back to Acts chapter 19 and read that. And I went through the book of Ephesians. Maybe there's a clue there. And then it dawned on me. He's talking about affections. It fits the context. He's talking about our affections. He's saying, you remember how you felt? You, you remember how you felt when you gave your life to Jesus? Can you, can you imagine these people? Laying awake at night feeling dirty and filthy, their tears probably trickling down their cheeks because they've done what they've done and they're feeling trapped. And how come it's taken me so long to get better? And I, I don't like what I'm doing. Can I stop this? And Jesus rushes into their hearts. The chains fall off, the guilt is gone. It's almost as if Jesus says, you, you remember how you used to, before you knew any of this stuff, you used to lay awake and tell me how much you love me. You used to tell me how grateful you are for me. I can't say it sounds corny, but this is extremely personal to me. I remember I gave my heart to Jesus when I was 13 and a half years old. And I would literally, I remember those days, I would literally lay awake at night. I didn't want to go to sleep. Because I just, in the quietness of my bedroom, dark, I wanted to say, Jesus. And I did tell Jesus, I love you. Will you help me? Will you help me understand this book? I love you, Jesus. I'm telling my age here, but there's an old song that says, you don't send me flowers anymore. (laughs) We'll go home on this observation. Um, 
This text always makes me think of Peter. Peter in John 21, you know, he had, Peter screwed up big time, right? He had, he had denied Jesus and all of this. And so uh, this is after the, after the crucifixion, after the resurrection. Uh, they, they're on shore with, uh, with Jesus. And Jesus is standing with charcoal fire. As you recall, Peter denied Jesus at a charcoal fire. And so Jesus invites him. He's fixing his meal for him. And I can imagine Peter thinking, uh, I don't do charcoal fires. And so he, he gets over there and uh, by the way, the place of your failure can also become the place of your restoration. And Jesus says to Peter, he asked him the question three times. He didn't give him a sermon. He said, Peter, man, do you love me? Yeah, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Peter, do you love me. Jesus didn't ask him that because Jesus needed the information. Jesus asked him those questions because Peter needed to hear in his own head the affirmation of what was core and central in his effectiveness as a follower. It's all about love. It was as if Jesus was saying, buddy, if you love me, there's no telling what I will do for you. Do you love the Lord? Do you love him? Cultivate that love. Respond to that love. And some of you who are watching or listening or might be, be in this room, you, you, you have yet to respond to Jesus. And you're not here by accident. I love how what Andy said earlier, there, there's an agenda here and it's up front. We want you to be delightfully overwhelmed by the love of Jesus. He invites you to come because he loves you. You don't have to be perfect. You have to do anything. But just say, Lord Jesus, I turn from my sin to you. And I receive your love. Father, thank you for yourself. Thank you for your love and mercy and grace in our lives. Oh God, you've been better to us than we could ever dream or imagine. Forgive us for being seduced by idols. Forgive us for choosing the process over the person. God, will you help us to be simple but clear people? The greatest thing that could ever be said about us is, boy, that dude loves Jesus. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.